Brad, I've been playing with my Playdate a lot. Sorry, you've been playing with your what? I've been playing with my Playdate a lot. Oh, oh your Playdate. Okay. What did you think I said? What's up with your Playdate? <laughs> well, I haven't been playing the games as much as... Um, <laughs> okay, that sounds like a handheld portable device. I mean, look... You know, I haven't, I haven't been, I, I expected to be cranking it more, uh, mm-hmm. although I have enjoyed the, the time travel adventure and, um, and the, uh, the bird watching game. I'm only on week three so far, oh. so I don't have that many games, which is, there, there's a lovely feeling on like Sunday night, Monday morning when I come out and I see the play date there and the little purple lights flashing. It's like, yo, you got new games. That is that purple LED is, first of all, I think that's the first time I've ever seen an LED, that particular shade of purple. It's something there's, there's something so pleasant about it. There's, it's it, like, it looks like candy. Yeah. It's like, it's like all of the brightness of a blue LED without any of the, my eyes wanting to bleed. It's, it's, it's like a lavender, I guess I would say. It, it's like, it's like comforting in a, yes. in a weird way. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, you're having, you're having the experience I did not, which is the actual like week by week rollout of games. I just got the whole dump. I, I think that's my favorite, like. Like, okay, it's an eminently pleasant little device, right? Like you hold it in your hand, it makes you, it, it's like a really good size. It's small enough that it fits in the front pocket of my jeans. So like when I went to, uh, you know, uh, practice the other day, I t- uh, my daughter's practice the other day, I sat and, and took it and I sat outside while she was practicing and, and played some playdate games on the back in the, in the field behind the, the uh, gym. It needs a case when I put it in my pocket though. I could see that. Yeah. Like it's fairly durable, but. Sure. I don't want to scratch up the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I fired up the laser cutter and I scanned it and I made a little, and I, I looked at the corners. I was like, Oh, these four corners are probably ferrous. And I put a magnet up to them and the, the little, the, you know, the little nuts on the corners, they're magnet, they're, they're, they're iron based. So they mm-hmm. magnet. Mm-hmm. So I made a little case that has three magnets on the corners and cutouts for the buttons and the D pad and the screen. And it just kind of snaps on with magnets and holds in my pocket and makes me real happy. Yeah. So you sent me a video of this on discord before. I think you also posted it to Twitter naturally, right? People can see mm-hmm. this on your Twitter feed. Yeah. I've done like four or five versions now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to a point where I, I like it. I'm still having a little bit of trouble. I'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah. People can go check it out on your Twitter feed. I'm sure everybody's like, well, it sucks that you slapped Chris rock, but you also made a cool play date case. So, wow. The plate, the, the Chris Rock complaints have gone down a little That's, bit lately, which I would is think kind so. of nice. Anyway, anyway, like, listen, I am not, I, I promise I'm not trying to flatter you, but when you sent me that video of this thing that you had made, I was like, did you order this? Did you buy it? Like, I genuinely thought it was like a retail product. Like, it Ooh, looks so professional. You. Like, I don't know how you matched the dimensions. I'm sure there's some process for scanning to match the dimensions perfectly. But I mean, it literally looks like a factory produced, like professional magnetic cover for the play date. It's kind of awesome. Well, so yeah, I scanned it. The hard part was matching the curves, but when I, cause I tried to do it with the photo first, but then the, the camera lens kind of warps things a little bit. So if you don't correct for that, then, then it, then it's never going to quite line up. Right. Um, but when I put it on the flatbed, I got a real clean, relatively flat size of it, which I was then able to place the buttons and stuff on. And like the tolerances on the buttons are such that it doesn't really wiggle. Like you put it down I had to open up one of them because it if you press the the kind of top right button for too long, it'll eventually crash. And the magnet was just strong enough to just barely push it if it wasn't lined up exactly right. But um, but yeah, no, it's, yeah, somebody somebody on Twitch Twitter recommended c- cutting out the screen so that that didn't scratch. So like there was dust or something in there, you wouldn't scratch the screen, which was a good call. Sure. Um, the figuring out the curves, I just opened it up in Photoshop and did Bezier curves and then and matched what was there. Um, what else? The, 
uh, I'm doing two different colors of, so I'm, t- I'm cutting two plates of acrylic. One has the cutouts for the buttons and then there's a top sheet that goes on top of that. The thing I'm having trouble with right now is figuring out how to bond those two pieces of acrylic to each other in a way that is like optically clear and doesn't add a bunch of weird distortion to. I don't think you probably can't see it on the camera, but like where the where the glue goes, there's a bunch of like, oh, I don't yeah. know. It's just weird. It it looks like it looks like oil and water combining yes. kind of in a way that a little gross. It's it's not entirely unpleasant, but it's not uniform enough to look intentional. Yeah. So um, if anybody has advice on that, I've been using like the really I tried cyanoacrylate or, cra- you know, crazy glue. I tried uh, the thick acrylic cement stuff that kind of gel the gel stuff. I just got some of the really liquidy acrylic cement yesterday and I tried that, but it it's it's having the exact same problem. So I'm I'm open to suggestions, I guess, is what I'm saying. So if anybody has ideas, holler. So I would love to know, but um, I'm pretty stoked with how this go. And if people like them, I'll check them on Etsy or post the files on HGO or something. And, and, you know, we can, we can get, we can get some acrylic. I want to do a wood one next. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause I can do like a wood top on an acrylic base. And I think that would look pretty cool too. Yeah. The wood grain against that yellow, that orangish yellow, I think would be a nice, a nice contrast. Where'd you get the, uh, the perfect four perfect little round magnets? Uh, you can buy magnets from Amazon. Uh, so these are just, these are five mil, uh, neodymium magnets. And then the reason they're perfect is because I cut the holes to be exactly the right size for them. So there's a, they're like glued in with a tiny, tiny dot of, uh, of crazy glue, but they're basically like they friction fit into the holes. Basically. Are you excited for your, uh, forthcoming career change into manufacturing? No, I do not want to work in manufacturing at all, but I will happily manufacture some nonsense for myself when it's easy and I can do it in Photoshop. Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I am Brad. Uh, I, I, but I really like the, how the games roll out. I know, I know people. I know some people are like, "Give me all the games right now," which I get. But like for me, it's nice to just sit down and have a week to spend with these two new games before I decide whether I'm going to like try something new or move on to the next one. Yeah, I've I've, I've seen it both ways. I've, you seem to really like this slow rollout, the 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 drip feed. I've seen some other people that are very frustrated that they don't have more to play. Um, what there's order? so much stuff on itch though man like there's so much stuff on oh, itch is there more stuff out there because i, yeah, I have releasing stuff every day it's crazy okay, okay. I, i've been i've been traveling and busy and just haven't mm-hmm. had a ton of time to spend with it after it came out out but prior to release you know i found like maybe half a dozen things on itch that were ready to download lot. is there a there's lot of, a, oh man like bloom is really cool it's 10 bucks but it's it's been it's it's super cool it's like a real-time uh flower game uh, th- there's a bunch of small, like there's a Tetris clone. Um, uh, what, what's the other stuff I've been playing that came from rich. There's a space invaders clone. That's pretty good. Uh, the, the, so the order is first week I got the surfing game and the birder adventure game. Yes. Those are, so those are the two I had when I unboxed it and then I wrote them an email and said, Hey, give me everything else. So the next one is, um, is the, the audio, uh, like the loop thing. Oh, um, I wanted to say for the animal loops, loop but it's thing. not that it's, it's something loops. Yeah. Right? And the music um, sequencer. 
music sequencer and um God, oh uh, cranklin cranklin's time travel adventure oh well oh, the, the robot the robot game yeah. yes i think i i did i wasn't aware of this apparently that was like the thing they used to demo this thing way back uh-huh. when early but on is, that's the kind of takahashi game i think isn't it i maybe i don't know i'm not I sure who made that one that one's anyway. neat. that one's that one is that one is a that's a good crank use for sure yeah yeah it's it's and it's very clever and really satisfying and surprisingly comp like for something that is essentially a one axis video game like it's surprisingly the puzzles are good yeah I, my my one other play date anecdote before we get on to this episode uh i was actually reading about gopher last night as one does oh yeah because yeah. there's a there's a new gopher client out that was getting some attention called gofi also okay. actually boy this could go in multiple directions now like okay number one i found out that there is more uh, than one co-founder of panic even though cable sasser is the one that kind of is in the public all the yeah, time yeah. But I don't know. I don't know how many there are total, but there's another guy named Steve something who apparently exclusively posts his blog on through Gopher. Like I, that. He apparently he wrote like a wow. big like he wrote like a big celebratory post the day the playdate shipped or the, the day it came out, but only posted it on his blog. He's you can access Gopher blog exclusively via Gopher. So uh, you can. There are multiple ways you can find his Twitter. I forget what it is right now, but like. A Gopher. B. If you want to go read this blog post, like you'll get, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, we talked about this before, the people who looked at this thing, like, oh, the, the thing will never take on the the switch or like whatever. It's like, no, they're not trying to, this is not a competitive I, video game console, but like he gets into it in that blog post very clearly why they made this thing. And like, it was very much like, Hey, we started this company hoping that one day we would get to the point where we could just make cool stuff that we think would be neat to make and not yeah. worry about whether it's going to make a ton of money or not. I mean, uh, look, they're making them as fast. They're selling them as fast as they can make them yeah. a year in advance now. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel like they're probably okay. The, the other thing I, maybe we should revisit this later. I was introduced to a couple of terms. Okay. In the course of looking at the gopher stuff, the dork yes. web. Okay. And the small web, like the S M O L web. Apparently it's like, okay. Like the, the kind of rings. Yes, basically like the kind of the kind of retro, like stripped down rudimentary Internet communication community. The people who are, you know, to put it in context of last week's episode, the people who are nostalgic for the time before the eternal September. I'm I'm kind like, of into like like there's an argument that, hey, it's like if you want to break out on the Web someplace, it's probably much easier to break out onto Gopher at this yeah, point. Right. You know, in the community of folks who still use Gopher uh, than it is to like make, make a sub stack that's going to land for millions of people. Right. right. So yeah. I mean, you know, like 70, 80 percent of the Gopher users on the on the Internet pretty easily. Right. Uh, you know, there's just there is a growing community of like makers and nerds of various flavors who are just very disillusioned with the state of the modern web and long for the time when you just communicated with people and there weren't corporations getting in the way and dictating what could be done and trying to sell you stuff constantly. You know what I mean? I mean, so one of the one of the things that came up as part of this 1993 double episode now is that 1993 is pretty much the year that that, you know, commercial there was there was no commercial use of the of the Web and commercial use of the Internet at this point was pretty new. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's something to be like we have a friend who was fairly instrumental in launching advertising on the Internet. Um, mm-hmm. 
It, and, you know, I, I at one point asked him, you know, do you ever feel like giving people the right to execute arbitrary code on on ra random people, the right to execute arbitrary code on every computer that connects to the Internet in exchange for hot takes was maybe a mistake. And he's like, <laughs> I mean, look, it, would I change the way some of that stuff worked? Probably. I mean, if you look at if you look at like programmatic tar targeted advertising as a positive or a negative, it's undoubtedly a negative. Mm -hmm. Like the advertisers don't like it. Users don't like it. The only people who like it are the corporations that sell it. So, yes. uh, yeah, I don't know. It's if, a if, it's a weird. Maybe run an ad blocker. That's the TLDR. Yeah. If corporations are the only entities that like something, there's a good chance that maybe that something is not. Dude, worth, it's not even all saving. corporations. It's yeah. just a subset of corporations. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, we, so before the, we get started, I need to apologize to Europe. Yeah. Okay. So yes, the, the, just in case people are coming to this fresh and don't know what we did last week. If you missed last week's episode, we were doing another year in review, which was 1993, but we got through like not nearly all of our, our material in that one episode. So. Turns out it was a big year. Yes. We are back with the sequel 1993 part two. Part two. This yeah. feels like cheating. <laughs> we, we did all this research for last week and we got this giant show notes doc and this week we just got to roll in here and record it because we already did all the research. This genuinely feels like cheating. This is awesome. Uh, so so apologies to Europe. Uh, your your history is complicated and frightening to me, and I'm not going to try to rectify my error. Many, many and varied errors uh -oh. with uh, with actual corrections. I'm just going to say I'm sorry. Okay. And, um, you know, maybe Cliff's Notes, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's complicated. Yeah, we're, I assume this is in reference to the European single market and the Schengen zone and... All the I'm just saying, the, nice job on not having any. Well, never mind. N nice job on reducing the number of wars dramatically, yeah. and uh, the open travel seems really nice. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I I pulled up the notes from last week, and you had added a new bullet point at the top that just says "apologize to Europe." Mission accomplished. I'm yeah. sorry, Europe. Yeah. Okay. Well, good to know. Look, all of this, I tested out of Western civilization in college, and honestly, this was all happening at the time I was in college, so it probably wouldn't have helped too much. Yeah, perfect excuse. Yeah, yeah. All right. What is what is next on the list of our review of 1993? Well, I was going to ask everybody who complained to send me a 300-word essay on the Monroe Doctrine and why it was wrong, so <laughs> I'm going to get some angry letters about that one now. Need, need a five-paragraph essay on the difference between the Marshall Plan and the Morgenthau Plan, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would like I would like a thousand words on the Teapot Dome scandal and its impact on uh, on the Taft presidency, Brad. Yeah, yeah. Um, what? What? Who's power computing? Power computing. So in the heady days of the early '90s, Apple said, "You know what? What if other people made Macintoshes? Not just Apple. What if we did this PC thing, but we did it in a very Apple-y way, and we only licensed out the rights to build Macs?" to certain trusted partners. So power computing was the first of those. Right. Yes. I remember uh, they made some news. Yeah, they made they made uh if you're if your beige Mac of the early 90s, your Performa or your Spectra was a was a stylish beige, you know, forward-looking computer that was signed by the designers inside. The power computing Mac clones were basically like bog standard ass uh, uh, cases and board designs. So they used normal PC parts, They but they put the, I'm sorry, they used normal PC specs for 
Mac boards and 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 uh, PCI slots and stuff like that. So you like actually PCI probably not PCI slots at this point, but basically you could get like a normal Mac board that went into a Mac and Apple built Macintosh wouldn't fit in a PC case. Power a PC power computing built Macs that fit in PC cases. So you're, so you're and, saying like a Macintosh board that was like ATX mini micro ATX or whatever. Yeah. ATX and, specific and, or whatever. Yeah. And the upshot is they they were a lot cheaper than an Apple Mac. I um, interesting. Like, so they really were just like the very consistent with the beige box PCs of the era. Like, and when I think back, I don't remember what they look like. I could Google one right now. Like in my memory, the power stuff still like kind of looked like it was trying to have the same design language as the Mac stuff, but, but maybe not. But it was mostly just the, the plastic on front of the case that snapped right. onto the front of the case. Okay. Yeah. So, um, the interesting thing about them is they lasted a long time. Eventually, Apple shut down the licensing program, and I assume as part of the deal, agreed to buy them because um, you know without the Mac license, they had basically no business. And yeah. uh, they spent a hundred million dollars buying them back. Oh, I'm looking at some pictures now, and yeah, these things are barely more stylish than the PCs of the time. Also, I think shutting down the license program was part of Jobs coming back, right? That was one. It was one of I his think, return things. Yeah, <laughs> it was literally that's literally like new presidential administration coming in, executive uh, issuing executive order day of the inauguration, like one stroke of the pen. Steve Jobs killed the I, Mac clone market. I mean, I don't. The people who made the 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 power computing people, I'm sure, were disappointed. Um, but also they made a buttload of money because I think that it was started with like a three or four million dollar seed investment from Sequoia. So like the people there got paid. Oh, so it these things fine. actually sold. Yeah, they sold. They, uh, so power computing. Uh, I don't know if this is true. This is what was on Wikipedia and it, it, there seemed to be citations. It was the first company to sell a million dollars worth of product on the Internet. Wow. Because they they basically mimicked the Dell and Gateway direct consumer model of Hey, if you want to buy a computer, if you want to buy a Mac on the internet, here's the place to do it and we will send it to you and then we'll support it and yada, yada down the line. Did you ever use one? Are they pretty much functionally um, identical? We had, we had some that ran, I think system seven in or system eight in the, in the computer lab, one of the computer labs I worked in and they were functionally identical from a Mac. The, the nice thing was if the power supply crapped out, you could just get a normal power supply and you didn't have to get the special Apple one. Like, like right. there was a, from a from an IT perspective for us, as long as the parts were continued to be available, they they were much easier to work on because they used like normal CD-ROM drives and they used normal floppy drives and and like I guess this was before Apple took the floppy drive out of everything, but like the parts were no, they were normal parts, which was really nice. Okay, so I I like, am just I'm fascinated by that era of Apple, the like uh, the Jobs intermission, I guess, like the era of like what was John Scully, I think, was running it when he left yeah. and then there were some other people that i forget and i think gil emilio was the last ceo before jobs came back but like they were just like lost in the woods in this period of time right like they had no idea what to do well they, they had a lot of money still like if you read the the books about this time they had a lot of money from like the apple II. like the the apple II continued to sell for a really long time and then the mac classic and the color mac and those those machines sold pretty well into the into the early mid 90s uh, and then this is about the time that they started having problems. Right. They were making big gambles on things that um, didn't have an immediate market, but were clearly future looking and interesting. Uh, like the Newton. Like the Newton. So, I'm sorry. Before we move into the Newton, I just have to bring up Copland real quick. Do you remember Copland? No. I, I went down the rabbit hole of reading like a, a bunch of history about Copland was supposed to be system eight. It was oh, supposed right. to be. It was supposed to be like, I, th I think system seven, like original Macintosh through system seven was all one 
continuum, right? It was all the same system software. Copland was supposed to be the full like rewrite, refresh, brand new operating system, system eight. You should read the Wikipedia page about Copland sometime. It sounds like the most disastrous attempt to develop an operating system ever. It's what led to them shopping around for an external the operating system. And, yeah, they, yeah. In fact, and yes, it was supposed to be for a while. It was rumored that it was going to be B. They were going to buy BOS and Jean-Louis Gasset was going to come in and run Apple. And that was going to be their next generation operating system. And then they ended up on Next and Steve Jobs instead. The rest is history. But like Copland, seriously, you should go read about it. Like the, the disaster of them trying to make that OS and demo it for press and like a complete, complete institutional failure. Huh. Anyway, will, I'm sorry. We'll check it out. Well, so, so like in that same vein, they looked and they were like, oh, handheld computers are going to be a big deal. Let's invest. And they, they, this was the year, 1983 was the year that they launched the first Newton, uh, which probably wasn't the first PDA. It seemed like it seemed like there were other like uh, th things out of, out of Southeast Asia and Japan that were maybe PDAs before that. But it was the first one that did handwriting recognition that worked um, that I knew of at least. And uh, you could actually write with real handwriting, kind of like if you did block letters, it was pretty reliable. If you tried to do cursive like it showed in the ads, that seemed to never work in my experience. Uh, and and it ate batteries. The first Newton ate batteries at a rate that's un, unprecedented. Uh, like it's right up there with the Game Boy, the original Game Boy and um, the Game Gear in terms of handheld stuff that that ate batteries in, in my recollection. Ouch. Did that zero I'm trying to, I started to say zero wireless connectivity of any kind, right? But I'm trying to think, was there even a wireless standard it could have used at the time? No, there was no wireless network at that point. Eventually yeah. you could get, um, um, I want to say eventually they had expansion cards. You get cell modems for, for them. But I think by the time Wi-Fi rolled around, the Newton was essentially a moribund. Oh, sure. it, was, it was killed by Apple and yeah. nobody was building stuff for it anymore. Yeah. God, imagine an iPhone that you have to put an expansion card into. Well, yeah, I mean, A, that would, sometimes would be nice. Uh, sure. B, yeah. B it would use styluses for this. It was all resistive touchscreens mm -hmm. and it was a single color display. Um, it was it was a weird, like PDAs at that time were weird. I, I ended up, I never had a Newton, but I bought a bunch of Palms later on. And the Palm, like I had, at one of my first jobs, I had like a ticket system that was built into Lotus Notes. And you updated the tickets you had by sitting down at your desk and plugging in the, you know, dropping the thing on the cradle and hitting the button. Huh. Right. Because there was no wireless. So like neat. I would go out on a job, I'd fill in the ticket, I'd put it back on my thing, hit the button, I'd get the next ticket when I, when I uh, picked up the, picked up the device again. That's neat. It was, it was a weird time. Yeah. Definitely a weird time. A lot of people trying a lot of stuff. The, a lot, yeah, that, of, a lot yeah. of technology not quite ready yet. But like you can definitely see the 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 glimpse of the future in the Newton. Like the apps ran and the apps were icons on a desktop, and and like the you know the the input area was at the bottom of the screen, which made sense for how you use the screen. And and you know the 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 barest hints of iOS were there and and carried forward. I think kind of secretly, probably sure. Sure. Also, you know, I, I assume the years, the several years of BlackBerry dominance directly descended from this wave of PDAs too, right? It was like, oh, let's slap a keyboard on there and make it a phone, kind of. I, I think that Blackberries kind of came from the two-way pager world. Oh, more. you think so? Interesting. Yeah, because they were much more, they were much more kind of linear devices. Like, like you, the main navigation device for a BlackBerry was a scroll wheel. So you you would like it was there was no. There was no concept for a long time on Blackberries of going right or left. You that you only went up and down in the UI. Okay, um, which is very much a pagery thing for me. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. 
Um, but, but it was, it was like, it's important to not underestimate how, how weird it was to have a pocket computer in 1990, in the mid nineties, just in general. Yeah. Like that was a novel concept. And even though they were like barely computers by today's standards, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a weird heady time and they like, I mean, they, I guess they were with inflation. They were probably pretty expensive because I think a Newton was 500 bucks. The Palm Pilots were 250 or $300 usually. So, so like it was, it was a reasonably accessible product. Yeah. That's cool. All right. As our astrophysics correspondent. Yes. I have, I have, I have developed a tradition in these episodes of a bullet point entitled space. I always say that with the Wheatley voice. Oh, you do? What do you got? No, it's in my head. I'm not going to try. Oh, you're not going to. I can't. No, I'm no. No, thank you, sir. Come on. Come on. You don't. You you don't do a good Stephen Merchant. Come on. It's how it's Stephen Merchant is a hard voice, man. Yeah, no, I mean, he's got a really good voice. He's got a really good voice. I don't want to do that. Yes. I've already got got Europe pissed off at me. I don't want them to be murderous with rage. Yes. Yes, I get it. Okay. Uh, Here are some of the headlines uh, from space stuff in 1993. The Mars Observer. Was lost. Oh, which one is that? Is that the one with the little robot? No. Little, so that little... was that was an orbital probe. That was a oh. that was a. Uh, it was actually I, I didn't write it down here, but I read it. Uh, the, it was adapted from a from a terrestrial satellite, or you know, a, oh like a, a like communication satellite. Yeah, a, a communication satellite that was in use around Earth at the time. The Mars Observer was adapted from that. Uh, it was going to assume orbit around Mars in order to study the geology, geophysics, and climate of the planet. Uh, but they lost it en route. Like how far? Like, way, like right after is it, is it left Earth or three days um, before it was to assume orbit around Mars? Uh, they lost ooh. communications. Actually, I so they don't actually know what happened to it. it they don't know if. Uh, in fact, I, I quoted this here. It is unknown whether the spacecraft was able to follow its automatic programming and go into Mars orbit, or if it flew by Mars and is now in a heliocentric orbit. So, like, hmm, but I. There's something there's something so like lonely and chilling to me about thinking about objects that are, are in some unknown orbit, like rogue planets that have escaped their solar systems or this satellite that never made it and may just be out there. You know what I mean? They just like, keep going forever. Yeah. Well, in this case, they they assume that it went in orbit around the sun if it didn't make it to Mars properly. But uh, what they think happened after a review, can you imagine I mean, the lead, the lead time on a project like this, like devoting years of your life to something like this and having it just like go completely AWOL and at the like right before the finish line. I mean, yeah, it, it, that would be heartbreaking. It's it's tough. Uh, what they think happened after a review is that there was a fuel leak and that the little bit of thrust coming out of this fuel leak put the craft into a spin. And that it detected the spin and went into like a sort of contingency, like fallback mode sort of disaster mode, which disabled the transmitter. Hmm. So. That would do it. Poor Mars observer. I know. Um, the interesting thing, this was part of the, like in the nineties, they spent the, the, like the idea was, Hey, we're going to do a lot of Mars shots. Cause like the Viking missions were billions of dollars. Like they cost, they used leftover Saturn fives. They cost a ton of money uh, in the seventies. The whole point of going back to Mars was though, that they wanted to make a bunch of cheaper, uh, uh, take advantage of the of the of the uh, orbit synchronization where you can do the the cheap you know eighteen month trip to to Mars, and um, 
uh, and, and like take, take a bunch of inexpensive shots. And this was, this was, I think the first of them. Okay. The next one was like global, uh, Mars global surveyor, which was later on. And then like the, 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 the probes, you know, like the, the perseverance and the, and the curiosity descended directly from the, from the odyssey and the, and the, um, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the other one? Oh God. The, the, the two solar powered ones, uh, the, the rovers on the planet. Yeah. Um, there's, what is there? There's, is opportunity one of them? Uh, yeah. Opportunity and spirit. <laughs> Again, listen, while, listen, while we try in vain to remember the name of various Mars rovers. This is what happens when I record too early in the morning, too. I, my, um, my apologies. Time zones. No, it's okay. Yeah, time zones. Time zones. Time zones. Um, um, yeah. I remember when this happened. Like, this is, Mars ate a lot of probes for a while. Like, Interesting. The, the ESA well, lost Beagle. Like, there's there's a, it was, it's a, it was a yeah, place I, into I, which we threw spaceships. A lot a of space junk. I, I knew the Soviets had lost some attempts as well, but I didn't realize that we had. So I, I was waiting to ask you if this made a lot of news because, I mean, you're a little bit older than me. You would remember better. I have some memory of this time. Uh, this was a, this was a talking point. So every time we lost a Mars probe or any kind of probe before it did any science, it resulted in a lot of Republicans or fiscal conservatives talking about pissing away space station money. Okay. That's exactly space money. Well, that's exactly what I was waiting to ask you about, but we need to get through our next one first, which is that this is the year they fixed the Hubble defective mirror problem. Yeah, that was a big deal. People so were I, like, I do I do remember that making news. I don't remember exactly what the like tenor of the discussion was, but I have to assume there was quite a bit of like, ah, the damn eggheads can't even make a mirror right. They're just wasting my tax dollars. I mean, there was a lot, at least in Northeast Tennessee, where I was at the time, there was a lot of what are they wasting our tax dollars on this for when when we have two wars to prosecute or whatever nonsense they were coming up with at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Hubble, I, th- I think Hubble was launched in 1990, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, yes. So, yes, even I remember I was pretty young, but even I remember that the fact that, OK, so here's what happened that, that, you know, space telescopes have gigantic mirrors in them. It's like a, what, an eight foot mirror or something? I'm not sure. Hubble? I don't have the size of the mirror in front of me here, but, you know, the, the, the mirror has got to be ground to uh, like, what, what's the term? Like a focal, focal length or I'm not sure exactly what the optical term is. It, it basically they they want of incredibly pre- for this kind of a space telescope you want incredibly precise focusing on on the the element the thing right. that sits in front that reflects the light back right right so they have to be grounded to an incredibly specific uh, seven seven foot ten inch mirror okay yes yes so so essentially I can read from the the NASA uh, the NASA information about what happened here the outer perimeter of this mirror was too flat by about twenty two hundred nanometers. Which is oh, a, God, which How is did about they make that big a mistake. Jesus, is, that is that is about one four hundred and fiftieth of a millimeter or one eleven thousandth of an inch. <sighs> but it resulted in all of the photos coming back from the Hubble being incredibly blurry. Yeah. Uh, and they 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 say after a review that the the reason that error happened was that one of the lenses in one of the pieces of calibration equipment they used to grind the mirror was out of position by one point three millimeters. Good God, man. Yeah. So uh, the um, part I didn't, I mean, I, I I probably knew this at some point, and it certainly makes sense when you think about it. But the part I hadn't thought about is they didn't just fly a new mirror up there. Like that was not exactly, out. not exactly practical. Well, I mean, they couldn't, they'd have to disassemble the entire telescope. Right. Because like it's not like, like, yeah, that's yeah. not like that. It's not like they're equipped to take it apart in space. 
and put it back together. Where where is the Hubble? And I, I assume is it one of the Lagrange points? It's, it's in, no, no, it's low Earth. Oh, it's, is it? Well, it's high low Earth, but it's oh, low okay. Earth. Okay, okay, yeah. Because change- the shuttle can't go further than low Earth. So oh oh okay. Uh, so yeah, they launched it out of the space shuttle, and it had a little bit of a booster to jet it up above space shuttle height when they launched it. As I recall, I see. I see. Where's James Webb? Is it? It's it's at a Lagrange trailing Earth, I think. Okay, it is. A, that's what I thought. Okay, yeah. So um, Lagrange points, if you don't know, are like there. It's like they're, they're f- the places where the where where multiple gravity wells intersect with each other, and yeah. they cause kind of eddies. I think is it is it any two body system i think i think you only well, you two, can have right? them between three body systems but they they're complicated then right so i think the ones we're talking about are between the earth and the sun right there at least in that case there are five of them they're they're just points of gravitational equilibrium between well, multiple well, bodies yes so the meaningful ones there there's ones trailing earth leading earth between earth and the sun on a radius from the sun to the earth there's also really useful ones between uh the moon and the earth Right. Uh, that, 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 yeah, that are potentially interesting for a multitude of reasons. Yeah. I, I may be, I may be incorrect about the, the earth sun stuff. I'm not sure exactly which points we're talking about, but the, the ones so, in question, so I think the, they're, they're generally denoted by like L1 through L5 and that kind of thing. Yeah. The, the, um, the JWST is at a earth sun Lagrange points. Okay. Um, so yeah, what they did instead of, you know, they couldn't replace the mirror. They, I'll, I'll, I'll quote from the NASA page on this thing. Replacing the mirror was not practical, so the best solution was to build replacement instruments that fix the flaw much the same way a pair of glasses correct the vision of a nearsighted person. They put glasses on the Hubble. Yeah. The spacewalk did, did this. If, like The history of this is fascinating. It, it, is, it was, at the time, one of the most um, like mechanically intense operations that was done because I don't believe that any of this was designed to be serviced in orbit. Like the, 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 they never intended to open this up and, and fix stuff in it. A daring mission. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of incredible. And, and like the nightly news reported each day how it went. Cause it was like a multi-day series of spacewalks and like, the, like here's how it's going. Here's the update. It's all the stuff we get on the live feed now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sad that I, I missed the hubbub around or You know, I caught someone or excuse me, the, Hubble bub, no, the hubbub is the right word. The Hubble bub, it's too Hub- early Hubble. for that kind. Nope, nope. Hubble bubble uh, is a different thing. Okay. Um, the Co-Star instrument, the Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement <sighs> Instrument. Do you, do you think there was somebody whose whole job was to take the words and make an acronym out of them? I, I hope so. Co-Star is a pretty good name. But that's uh, a pretty good one. Yeah. Apparently, it was about the size of a telephone booth, according to NASA. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, lastly, think they put it in the end, like the business oh, end. I don't know. Telephone boots pretty big. That's true. It says uh, it placed five pairs of corrective mirrors in the counter the effects of the flaw. There you go. Uh, all right. Lastly, in space news, Comet Shoemaker Levy nine was discovered. Are we only talking about this because it's your name, Brad? I don't. You brought this up beforehand and said I had to take this and implied that there was like something comical or Comet, I don't know. Comical. God damn We're losing hemorrhaging listeners now. Uh, this is cool because it's the first time we saw something smash into another planet, right? Yeah. Yes, I guess. Or or, or anything. According to the, the Wikipedia summary said it was the first time they, they observed any two objects in the solar system directly. Uh, yeah. As they collided. Not just yeah, a planet. Sure that somebody had seen a, a meteorite hit the Earth before, but probably didn't live to report it. Right. Or, or you know, like at least in modern astronomy with modern instruments and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, th- this was cool. The the um, you got to see the six fragments hit Jupiter, each with like more energy than the entire world's nuclear arsenal. Yes, which is, like by a lot. I was oh, yeah. man, you you took my 
Oh, sorry. That was my hero stat. Oh, uh, how many times, Brad? I, I, a lot. Hang on. Let me, we'll get there. Uh, okay. Let's see. It was also the first comet they found orbiting Jupiter. I think they thought that it was a capture. That makes sense. Originally orbited the sun like every other comet and then Jupiter captured it. Um, yeah. But the tidal forces of being in orbit, orbit around Jupiter are supposedly what broke it up. And then, yes, these different fragments collided over a series of days, I believe, in 1994. It was it seemed fast, as I recall. But yeah. So, yes, the largest fragment of the comet when it uh, impacted Jupiter released 600 times more energy than the entirety of the world's nuclear arsenal. Oh, we're really missing out. We should we should have some comets. Boy. Get rid of those nukes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, man. It's just, if, just, if that had hit us, just we, massive we'd velocity. be done, right? That's the idea. Oh, Yeah. I, yeah, okay. I certainly would. I, I forget how big that thing was, or I didn't see how fast it was going. I, I mean, I'm assuming, but yes, that sounds, that certainly sounds like an earth scale planet killer to me. Yeah. Uh, I um, found a, um, I found a, a visualization, like a pretty nice CG simulation of what would happen if Ceres uh, impacted the earth at high velocity. Ceres, <laughs> the large asteroid. So, yes. The, the spherical asteroid, or I guess it might yeah, be a planetoid actually. It may be considered it's a dwarf planet, I think, or maybe even a dwarf planet. Yeah. Uh, it was chilling to watch. It was chilling. The good news is that's not going to happen. No, that's not going to happen. But like just the idea of it, like the amount of energy that was deposited. I mean, it essentially turned the entire surface of the planet molten over that the course fun. of a few hours. Wow. <laughs> Scoured everything from the surface. Let's, let's move on. Yeah. It's grim. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1993 was the year the SGI launched the Onyx, uh, which was a big giant, one of the early 3D workstations. Uh, they came in both rack mounts and like a desktop cube that was about the size of a small refrigerator. It was huge. Um, the the and and of note, this was the dev kit that Nintendo used for early uh, N64 games. Interesting. Oh, excuse me. I think you mean Ultra 64. Sorry, Ultra 64. Project uh, Reality. Yes. They, they but, but I mean, it's like, how do you make 3D games when there's no 3D hardware? Right. That's, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, it turns out you buy a quarter of a million dollar workstation for, for dev kits. Yeah. And uh, then only probably one person in the studio or two people in the studio have access to machines that can show you what the game is going to look like on hardware that won't exist for another year to two years. Probably it's kept in a climate controlled room. Two <laughs> keys have to be turned simultaneously to open the vault. I, I assume that the, um, that, that, that at that point, like extrapolating out what I know about PC game dev at that time, the teams were still pretty small. Like we're talking 20 to 40 people on a big game. Oh Yeah. And uh, yeah, the this is actually cycles were like 18 months at the outside. So, right, right. I mean, to put it in context, I mean, this, you know, obviously this was the direct successor to the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Even some of the biggest Super Nintendo games like Final Fantasy VI, like, one, you know, in Which my mind, an enormous game. Yes. In my mind, one of the more sprawling games on that system, I think, had like six developers, maybe seven. Yeah. It was a tiny team. Like the yeah. development teams were still pretty scrappy. Um. So, uh, the, the launch versions of these used MIPS processors, mm-hmm. uh, but they had reality engine two graphics pipelines. And then eventually that you could buy it in either MIPS or I think deck alpha configurations, uh, depending on what kind of, what kind of processor architecture you wanted. Yeah. But, but like the panel, the, the input panel on the back of this thing, especially the workstation ones is the best. Cause it's got like. 55 different weird analog DBS plugs, like all VGA and serial and, and, and the screwy things that we'd never seen before. So sure. also, this uh, is never, one of, this is one of the cool ones. If you Google 
the SGI Onyx. This is this is up there with cool SGI case designs. Yeah, I think I think I like the late '90s, like like the tower when they got more reasonably sized, when the 3D accelerators got more accessible. Yeah, that's fair. They got they got a little too curvy for my taste later on, though. Oh, I like, I this, like the, the Onyx is true to its name. The Onyx is just this like big black cube. It's just an obelisk. Those those curved ones look like something looks like a spaceship from Babylon Five or something. They yes, cool. there is a distinct nine, late nineties cheese, sci fi cheese to yeah. those cases for sure. Look, there, yeah, there was taste. a look taking a normal ass PC case and then putting a bunch of injection molded plastic stuff clipped onto the outside was a very popular thing for a while in the sure late nineties or early two thousands. It sure was. All right. Uh, speaking of video game related stuff, I guess I mean this has much broader applications, but Lua was created in nineteen ninety three. The the scripting language? Yes, the programming language, you might say. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that old. Uh, yeah, a lot of this stuff is. Like, Python also is very old. Like, a lot of these, a lot of the languages in, that are still in use are are from this era, like early 90s. Like, the, you know, there's a lot of the frameworks that were built for them came later. That but makes sense. Initial yeah. releases of a lot of these, a lot of the current, like, the garbage collected languages that are. Like, I, think, I, I think programming languages just take a very long time to architect and design and implement and then start catching on. You know, like even Rust is, I think, 10 to 15 years old from its genesis at this point or something. Yeah. Like everything's I, been I mean, around for a while before you've heard of it, if, unless you're like a bleeding edge software developer. If you think about it, when I first started, when I took CS100 in college, like it was one of the, I think they'd been teaching C in that class for like two years at that point. And before that it was, it was uh Fortran probably Yeah, it's like all Fortran and COBOL. And yeah. Yeah. Like ancient stuff at that right, point. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, Lua, Lua is notable for being all over the place in video games, right? Like, like Ro- yeah. Ro- Roblox uses it for scripting. Uh, Unreal of- uses it for scripting stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, World of Warcraft uses it for UI mods. It's funny. That was the first place I was exposed to it. I think was probably in WoW yes, UI mods. Absolutely, twenty years ago. Yes, for sure. God, wait, um, but what? it's it's did still you, all over the like. It's still did super you, like the playdate. You can write Lua games for. Did you just say twenty years ago? WoW came out twenty eighteen years ago, Brad. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. I just I'm not quite ready to hear the World of Warcraft is basically twenty years old. Have you played? Have you looked at WoW in recent history? Dude, I don't get into my weird perversions. I keep. I keep the, the PTR client installed at all times because like several times a year, I'm just seized by nostalgia. Want to go, want to go back to Ogremar? Uh, yeah, pretty much. So, so yes, here's a little tip. Uh, you can, I might've gotten this from the discord. You can, you can play the PTR for free. Nobody is on it. And I mean, oh. nobody like huh. usually, usually when I get in there, I'll do a slash who to see if anybody else is online and there might be one other person in a given zone. Maybe. We, we should be the PTRs only, only raid. Uh, uh, do they give right. you free gear on the That's PTR right. still? We're going to be the top guild on the PTR. No the top raid guild on the PTR. No, you still have to play it as normal, but, oh. uh, but you can import all your old characters. If you have any old characters from back in the day, Oh, you can bring them right into that server and like all the level balancing that they did where everything is like level 30. Now you can basically just most zones, except the current content, you can just run in there and kill everything in one hit. So, Oh, like I, I also stopped playing before flying mounts really became a thing, especially yeah, in the same. old game. So it's kind of fun to fly around all those old zones you played way back when and check stuff out that way. And like I've run through a bunch of old raids like Skolomance that I only heard about back in the day because I wasn't high level enough to check them out. And it's just like I want to see what Skolomance was like, and I just run in there and kill everything, and it's fun. That sounds fun. It's it's a neat little trip down memory lane. Anyway, Lua still in use. Yeah, like you said. uh, Lua is is one of the two. I think C is the other one. You can write games for the play date in Lua or C. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you can do it. It, it pops up all over the place. It's that's that's the that's the weird thing. Um, yeah. Should we talk about math? Sure. Not my not my favorite or best subject, but sure. I'm going to mispronounce his name because I've never I realized as I was getting ready to talk about this, I've never actually heard his name pronounced. I think he's French. So for, yeah. for Matt, for Matt's last theorem. Yeah, that's the maybe phonetic way to say it. Yeah, I, I apologize again. Uh, I think that this is Matt's greatest troll. Okay. So he wrote in the margins of a, of another manuscript, uh, this thing right near, near the end of his life. And he said, it's impossible to separate. So it's impossible to separate a cube into two cubes or a fourth power into two fourth powers, or in general, any power higher than the second into two like powers for any number greater than one or two is the implication here. I've discovered a truly marvelous proof of this, which this margin is too narrow to contain. <laughs> it's a definite troll. So basically it's, it's the idea is, you know how a squared plus B squared is equal to C squared. When you're talking about a, a, a right triangle, the Pythagoracium theorem. Yes. Yes. He's saying, uh, that you can't do that for number for, 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 for other constructs. It only applies to like right triangles basically. And this guy named Andrew Wiles, a mathematician, figured out a proof i think um when was when was when did fermat die it was a long time it was it was in 1600s so oh, wow okay it was a four 400 year old uh conjecture at this point um uh and yeah it, and it was a conversation that like it opened up a lot of math basically uh that in that it, uh, obviously most high level math stuff has to do with cryptography but it also uh, changed a bunch of like it, it was it was a it was a foundational piece of math that was developed and Andrew Wiles initial proof ended up being having some errors that they were able to patch later on so okay. um, is it really a troll if you actually have the goods the, the so the analysis of the solution that Andrew Wiles came up with and it's possible there's still another proof out there that's simpler but the analysis was that the math foundation that was required to generate Andrew Wiles's proof did not exist in the 1600s when Fermat huh. wrote this in the thing. Huh. Like, so, so either he came up with a different proof that was simpler, which is possible, but unlikely, or he was just trolling people. <laughs> the world will never know. But the world will, ne I mean, this is what we need time machines for Brad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this, this next one, you explicitly told me to read nothing about this topic before we came in here. Okay, so I've avoided looking at your bullet points. What do you got? Biosphere two uh -huh. was a was a scientific endeavor. Oh, in, it's, the, it's the one with Polly Shore, right? No, that's a movie. That that movie <laughs> that no, that movie's <laughs> look. He tweeted two days ago what that bio Biosphere two the movie is is in is in the works. What because of of continued continued audience interest. It's a They're fan favorite cult classic. Have you ever seen it? I've never no, actually seen it. I have not. Okay. This was the movie just called Biosphere. It was called Biosphere. Okay. Uh, so, so that, so this is the pop culture implementation of the Biosphere project, but the Biosphere project was an actual real thing where they had a two year mission into a sealed environment in the desert in Arizona. Um, it had seven biomes that were with 3.4, 3.14 total acres inside. There were eight people that lived inside and they wanted to do it as a test to see like what they would learn. main trying to maintain a sealed environment in case we wanted to, to build like, you know, habitats in space that were, that were sealed in a similar way. 
the environments were rainforest. There was an ocean with a reef. There was a mangrove wetland. There was a savanna. There was a fog desert, an ag- ag- agricultural area, and then just the human, like the living quarters for the humans. Sure. And uh, power came from a natural gas plant uh, that was outside the dome, I believe. Do we know, can we assume that the, the eight people they chose were competent, probably experts in their field and yeah. not just like people off the street? Oh, no. Yeah, they absolutely they did not. They did not get Pauly Shores in to run this <laughs> okay. thing. They had they had um, people who, who were specialists in, in yeah. various things. Right. Um, and it sounded awful. OK, like it really went to shit fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like that, that's why I wanted to establish that, that these were like kind of the best suited people to carry this out. And even then. There was a public perception at the time that the whole thing was a boondoggle and was a stunt, um, which I mean, I'm waving my hand, right? <laughs> sure. I, I, it seems like in retrospect that it was actually like they made a really they made a real effort to like see what happened when you see if you could generate enough oxygen out of these biomes to to offset the carbon dioxide produced by the by the by the people, by the humans. Um. But it sounded really, really, truly awful. Like the first year, everybody reported constant hunger. They were all on like sub 1500 calorie diets because they couldn't produce enough food inside. Um, The the oxygen levels were low and the carbon dioxide levels were really high. So they were kind of, you know, you know how you get when you've been in a conference room for too long and Mm. the PBM spikes. A little loopy. Yeah. So oxygen started at 20.9% when they when they closed the door. And after 16 months, it was a 14.5%, just pretty low at that, at which point they decided they wanted to inject from the outside to stabilize the experiment because they didn't want people to, you know, start having, uh, problems. Right. Uh, they, they also consumed the low calorie, high nutrient diet from this guy named Roy Walford's life extension experiments. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, his, his stuff is the basis for a lot of the, the, the kind of fasting, Diets that you see now that are supposed to make people like Peter Thiel live a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost all of the vertebrates inside the different biospheres <laughs> oh, died. No. Oh, no. Almost all of the pollinating insects died. Oh, no. Uh, and even though the humans inside almost immediately split into two factions that were basically at war with each other, they still work together mm-hmm. and uh, they got the work done to keep the experiment going Partly out of a sense of self-preservation, but partly, I think, because they all had all invested a lot of ego in the in the thing. And it was a weird mix. There were like some executives. There were some ecologists. There was a, a doctor. There was a psychologist. Like it was it was not a it was it was a group of people who were all really committed to this idea. And it was called, of course, it was called Biosphere 2 because the first biosphere is the Earth. <laughs> of course. Of course. Hey, they understand branding. Scientists. Yeah. Just- yeah. Uh, the two factions were the ecology research versus the closed system research factions. Of course, of course, that's, that's so how it always goes. The nerdiest factions possible. Yes, um, they did it again uh, the ne- after they finished the first year, which the finishing the first year happened in ninety three. It started in ninety one. Uh, they started again in ninety four and uh, and ran out of money midway through it. But you can, it's still there. Wow, you can go, you really? can go visit it now. Oh. Huh. Polly Shore is not there, as no. far as I know. What state is? This? Well, you said it's in the desert. It's in Arizona. I think. Arizona. Okay. Do you, where did the money come from? Like, I'm, I'm sure, as we've established previously, I'm sure that had a lot of effect on the public response to this. Um, it was funded by billionaire philanthropist Ed Bass, huh? Oh. Uh, and systems ecologist uh, John P. Allen. Well, okay. Bass provided 150 million dollars in funding, which lasted until 91. 
Okay. Um, and yeah, they wanted like this was this spun off of Buck, the Buckman, Buckminster Fuller Spaceship Earth concept, which we okay. which we like. You know, I, I I learned about that as a kid. Yeah. One one more quick thing. You have a sub bullet point <clears throat> here that you did not comment on, which says oh, yeah. secret food stashes. Oh yeah, that so that was the kind of stuff that got reported on the nightly news. Like they like the news treated this thing as a as a thing that was cursed to failure, <laughs> and like talking about secret food stashes or any time when they had to add oxygen, it was like this is a horrible. But in in reality, like it was always an experiment, and there were always contingencies. From reading from reading the post, like who knows who wrote writes this stuff, but from reading the the post wrap ups and the and the journal articles that came out of it, it seems like like things were done deliberately and with with you know best intent to get clean results out of, okay. of this. So, so those were intentional stashes that were put there in case of emergency. I, the stashes I don't know about. The oh, oxygen definitely was a real okay. thing. Okay, the stashes I, I believe were just alleged and never I actually see, I see. confirmed. Yeah, I, I took that to mean certain self interested members of the experiment maybe were <laughs> shoring up their own positions. Well, so I will say from watching a fair amount of Survivor over the years, if people are eating low calorie diets and one person is is hoarding food uh-huh. it's going to go real bad for the person who's hoarding food fair yeah yeah, yeah okay. that's that that's a real good way to get voted off the island if you know Caution, what i mean yeah. cautionary tale yeah uh toward the end of the year this mm-hmm. is a thing i remember uh fondly uh the doom shareware yeah. uh uh carmack and and id had been working for 30 hours straight they uploaded the first episode of the game to um, a big FTP server at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and immediately, like the server went down before they could get the file all the way uploaded. As I as I understand it, I didn't know about it at this point, but we downloaded it shortly after, later that night, from one of the mirrors, and went downstairs and played in the computer lab in the basement of my dorm when the lab closed at midnight. And uh, yeah. It was a, it was an amazing, uh, it was a, like, we'd like Wolfenstein was a thing that we had played uh, before that point. So you knew this but, was coming. Um, I, I would say that there were like two kids on the, on the floor of my dorm that were really dialed into like what was, what was coming out. Uh, and then one of them was like, Hey, I got the doom shareware. And so we copied it to floppies and went downstairs and put it on all the computers in the lab. And we were like, what's this multiplayer thing? And then we got yelled at by the network admins. You, you left out the part where your heads all collectively exploded when you played Deathmatch for the first time. I, I'm going to go ahead and tell. Okay, so we started out by playing some single player and then somebody was like, hey, what's this multiplayer thing? We, we fired it up and it worked. And we were just like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. We're shooting <laughs> yeah. each other. Is Cannot. that you? Like, like literally, that <laughs> yeah. was the thing. Because like at that point, I don't think I'd ever played a computer game that like one person... That, that, you, that wasn't like two people sitting in front of the same TV. Right. Like the game on this computer is interacting with the game on this other computer. I just, man, I cannot imagine being in college in a dorm the night that Doom released. Well, my roommate almost lost his work study. That's because, <laughs> because like we fucked up the network for yeah. the school. Cause there was a bug uh-huh. that basically, I think it packet flooded the IPX network um, whenever you had a multiplayer game going. So it basically brought down all network, traffic on the on the whole school land because they didn't have it segmented the way we would now oops um yeah and that was bad so uh there was an update the next day but we were not allowed to play doom in the lab anymore (laughs) the damage had been done yeah it was very sad yeah i i I didn't come to doom until i think the year after and 
I had a much reduced version of what you're describing by playing it over the modem with one friend across town. But even then it was just like, oh my God. We, I, I did that for years afterwards. Like yeah. I played, I, my, my friend Marty and I played doom and Duke 3d and descent and, um, like all those kind of early modem to modem multiplayer. Like I remember you may not, you, when quake came out, it was controversial because there wasn't an easy way to play modem based because it was a server host game. Oh yeah. I remember you had to have an internet yeah. connection, which not everybody had. Yeah, and most people didn't have an internet connection that could play Network Quake at, at launch, especially. Also, I mean, you can still, not to get off topic, you can go back and read the Carmack plan update right after Quake came out, where he basically says, like, oh, yeah, we didn't test the netcode over modems. I have a T1 to my house. Yeah. Is what he said. <laughs> like, they had no idea how badly Quake was going to play over modems because they didn't, because they were living that life. They, they weren't that concerned about market fit back then, it turns yeah, out. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Um. Yeah, no, it was, it was, um, it was a really like it was the first time that shareware. So I think the copy of Wolfenstein that everybody was passing up and down the hallway because, you know, freshman dorms at college are one of the great software piracy scenes. It turns out um, the 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 copy of Wolfenstein was one of the retail packages that was sold eventually. And so, like, I had never been exposed to shareware before that, like. Like I was like, wait, what? We reached the end of the game. We got to start. How do we get the rest of this? Um, you had to call a phone number and mm -hmm. give them your credit card number, and then they would send you like a key that would unlock the rest of it or something. I, I don't know. It was weird. One eight hundred id games, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that seems right. That seems right. Um, operators are standing by, but mm -hmm. yeah, it was it was uh, like that moment when, and of course, we all played on mouse on keyboard only. Right. Like nobody knew to use the mouse at that point, too. Right. So that's yeah. the other funny thing. Like the moment somebody was like, oh, I'm, what is it? Wait, wait, you can turn a lot faster if you use the mouse. <laughs> right. That, I mean, that changed the game. I mean, dude, I, I played Doom on a Gravis gamepad for the first few months. I didn't wow. know any better. I mean, look, Gina played on a 32. The 30, The only version of Doom she ever played was the 32X version. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Well, that's not a terrible version. It's playable. It's fine. And it didn't make her motion sick. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. First and last first person shooter. Anyway, Doom. Doom. All right. We maybe could have put a little more thought into the flow of this episode. We're on our last topic. It's a real banger. It's text encoding and file formats. Look, man, if you want to show me a more interesting topic than text encoding and file formats, I'll scroll back up to the space section and be waiting for you. Okay, fine. All right. Let's just do this here. UTF-8. UTF, Unicode in general. Is this the eighth version of, Uni of the no, Unicode text format? No, this is an 8-bit implementation of the Unicode spec. Oh. That's what the different UTFs are. UTF-8, UTF-16, UTF-32, so those are 16 and 32-bit. It essentially is how many bytes per character they use to encode them, and it determines how many characters in the spec, how many different characters they can represent. I don't know what's... I tried to do a little more research on what UTF-16 and 32 are used for, couldn't come up with a ton because UTF-8 apparently covers basically every writing system on Earth. So, emoji, right? I'm we sorry? Need, are we gonna, we'll eventually run out of emoji space in UTF-8. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I'm not sure. But um, this is kind of, this is essentially my impression. You tell me the little bit of reading I did about this. Like UTF-8 is kind of the successor to ASCII. Remember that's ASCII my understanding. Text? Yeah. So uh, also I did, ASCII text apparently grew straight out of the telegram. Really? That yes. I didn't know. Yes. So I went and looked. The, the ASCII, uh, ASCII text was defined beginning in 1961, and it was based on telegram code. Um, 
Uh, but the A in ASCII stands for American, so it is pretty much just Latin characters, I believe. Okay. Um, here's a fun. Here's another fun tidbit about tidbit about Unicode UTF-8. Uh, it is backwards compatible with ASCII. The first, the first 128 characters of of UTF-8 are the same as the first 128 characters of ASCII. Oh, that makes sense. So ASCII becomes valid UTF-8 encoded text as well. Oh, uh, th- that's that's that's. Wow, that's really clever. So then it just works. Yeah. But but huh. but but yes, you, uh, gosh, I had it in front of me and I may have lost it. The number of characters that can be represented in UTF-8 is quite a few. Um, once you get up into 16. Oh, here it is. Yeah, it's it's well over a million. It's basically over 1.1 million characters can be represented in the 8-bit UTF. So you're saying we have room for more emoji? Probably. Probably. Okay. Thank goodness. Yes. Uh um, uh, I, I guess I'll it's UTF eight is like all over the place in all the Unix likes these days. Um, it is the current stats I could find are that 98% of web pages and up to a hundred percent in some languages are encoded in UTF eight. Well, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Cause it's one of those things that like you kind of probably didn't have to know anything about. And then all of a sudden it was everywhere. Yeah. I mean, 20 years later, but yes. still. Yeah. Also, if you ever work with like text parsing and, and stuff like that in a Unix like or whatever, like sometimes you do have to care about what, how the text is actually encoded, even though you can't see it. It just looks like text, but it does matter. Um, it's important for smart quotes. That's all I know. Mm-hmm. The last thing I wrote here, which is kind of tangential, it still really weirds me out to see emojis in a terminal program. I, um, the thing I didn't realize is that a lot of the emojis are copyrighted. Oh, I didn't know that. So yeah, that's why everybody has different ones. Oh, so there's yeah, no, you, there's I've, no I've, standard drawings. It's just a rep, like the emoji spec includes the description of the, of the drawing, right. but not the actual drawing. Yeah. I have seen out there comparisons of like, here is the Apple version of this and the Google version and the windows version. Like Apple's gun is a squirt gun and Android's gun is uh well, I mean, I think it's a squirt gun now, but for a long time <laughs> it was a regular gun. Huh. The, um, the interesting thing is I think Twitter released uh, their emoji spec as uh, it's open source. So you can oh, actually cool. just like if you want to implement implement a uh, emoji font in your application, you just grab their glyphs and you're good to go. That's probably smart branding. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And they also do a really nice job because they have full color and outline only ones, which oh. is important. Yeah. The outline only ones, it turns out, are really good for stuff like terminals and, and things like that. Right. I, it's just it's just weird to me because I understand how like a terminal is drawing text to a screen in graphics mode and everything. But to me, terminals are still a descendant of that era when you had nothing but text mode. Should, and it well, shouldn't yeah. be able to display graphics in a in a fixed width terminal output. But should we do an emoji episode? Maybe I, I like that's such a like I remember when phones were new, you had to download a special app to get access to them. And then all of a sudden they were built into the phones. And then mm-hmm. the next thing you knew, your parents were using them. So. Yep. Okay, what happened to the humble emoticon, Brad? They are ubiquitous. I am a, you might be shocked to find, I am a stubborn emoticon holdout. Me too. I, I think it's a, I think it's a gener- this is a generational definer, probably. It absolutely is. I, yeah. I turned off all the text to emoji translation on Discord. Wow. Stubbornly, stubbornly, I am a colon, close parenthesis type of person. Okay. I always, actually, I always like equal sign close parenthesis i thought that was or even equal sign like close bracket i thought those are fun smiles. oh i did i did i, I was it was a colon o and then a, a parenthesis because okay. i like a, i like it i like my smiley faces to have noses mm-hmm. sure i like i i, I am i'm a big fan <laughs> i'm a big fan of of carrot underscore dash 
Oh yeah, carrot underscore like, dash is pretty it's good. Kind yeah, of a, it's kind of a like a. Like or a, also capital O underscore little O is a good one of a kind of that is a confused. Is that discom- like the cockeyed dis- discombobulated? Though you're kind of squinting yeah. with one eye. Yeah, because of- this is, I was I was I was interpreted that one as stink eye. Look, for a long time, I'm not going to lie. I was afraid of emoji because I was afraid I would like that they, that people use them for different things than they were mm-hmm. like obvious for. That's, yeah, I think that's a valid I, concern. Yeah, I didn't want to accidentally proposition someone or something. Right. Yes. You never know. Never use the eggplant, Brad. And trees mean weed. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Yep. Who knew? Uh, a couple more file formats here, real quick. The RAR format. Oh, only the hottest stuff. Debuted in RAR 1993. Is really this new? I guess so. Wow. Uh, so RAR it was and is proprietary to this day. Hmm. It's still controlled by I guess now the brother of the programmer who conceived it. Okay. But they kept it in the family, I guess. But like. I'm sure you've noticed over the, over the years, right? Like the RAR support in various programs is like pretty limited. Like you can't create a RAR. You can't create a RAR. There's a distinction. You can uncompress RARs with, I think, publicly provided libraries, I think is how it works, but you can't create them in anything but an officially licensed program that is licensed to create RAR files. I, I'm, I'm trying this right now. In? 7-zip. Yeah, seven zip is, is the example I'm thinking of. You can yeah, you, can you can't un- make a roar. Yeah, no, absolutely not. You can you can uncompress roars in seven zip all day long, but you can't make them. There wow. might be an add-on. I forget. I'm uh, I'm blown away. Yeah. Also, I, the, I had no idea it was proprietary. Yes. I assumed it was something that some yes. some open source people made and Ooh, like absolutely became the not. popular thing. Yes. Uh, RAR files can be created only with commercial software. WinRAR, RAR for Android. Uh, command line RAR and other software that has written permission from Alexander Rochal. The interesting thing about RAR is it it immediately like it, it seemed to take like at a time when bandwidth was at a premium for most home users, it took over a very specific space, mostly in the piracy community. In my <laughs> recollection, mostly on Usenet. Like yeah, use Usenet early Usenet and Usenet binaries are absolutely where I first encountered raw files, and I don't know why it took off the way it did. Was it better compression? It was better compression. Yeah. Okay. So the the thing the thing the other place you would see is on there was a thing that people used to do. This is weird when I think about it. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but like it used to be that you would get a link to a random FTP server, like some public FTP server, because people used to have publicly writable. FTP directories where you could just upload your file to their server and you would get a deep link into some like 20 layers deep FTP tree <laughs> hidden directory. Yeah. That had a, had some character that would make it not register. And then you'd find like, like two gigs of, of pirated software in there, which is zero day sitting there on a government server. God only knows how many viruses, like what a vector for viruses that stuff was like, it was a trip. Um, but those were always raw files, it, like invariant. Like you, you could go to FTP searches and search for asterisk dot raw to find the folders. Often was is the gist. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, Don't I'm, do that. It's a bad idea. Oh. Also, I'm, I'm surprised raw caught on as much as it did, considering how locked down it is, uh, licensing wise. But anyway, I think it got. I think it it caught on because of like you would. I, I literally think somebody was like, Hey, I want to copy a Photoshop and they would go download a Photoshop and it was a raw and then they'd have to download WinRAR yeah. to, to, to unpack their pirated version of Photoshop. Yeah, I, actually, I don't know. Everybody was using WinRAR back then. So they, it was not a problem. Yeah. I mean, you had it and you just had to wait 30 seconds for the little, like the splash screen would come up and be like, Hey, 
WinRAR, WinRAR is commercial software. If you want to keep using this for commercial use, you have to pay us 20 bucks. And or you could just wait 30 seconds and click the thing and it would go away. Fair. Yeah. All right. Last thing. PDF. I can't believe we've reached the end of 1993. That's it. That's all that this happened. Is, this is maybe like in a lot of ways, kind of one of the most impactful things that happened in, in 1993, I think. PDF. Yeah. Because prior to this point, like prior prior to PDF, there wasn't you could send an enca- encapsulated postscript file, but that wasn't really a. a like they're challenging the postscript files. Um, PDF was a designed to be a cross platform way to share fonts and, and page designs uh, in a way that they would render the same on multiple, on all sorts of different systems. Right. Bitmap graphics, vector graphics, fonts, like kind of all like self fully self-contained portable. You might say a portable format for documents. Wow. Weird. Why was it not PFD then? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Was there any oh. um, uh, Acrobat? This came with Acrobat, by the way. Right, which, yes. Acrobat yeah. was the first reader from Adobe. And uh, creator. Yeah. Was there was um, there any like concern at the time that you remember about like, oh, Adobe is trying to control the publishing space with their own format type stuff or? No, because there were at that point, there were 50 different desktop publishing tools that were okay. like, remember, this was way before InDesign wouldn't start becoming popular for another seven or eight years. So people were mostly using stuff like Quark and and Microsoft Publisher on the low end, um, and and then there were some other tools too that I I, I never touched. But um, Adobe at that point, Adobe was the Photoshop and Illustrator company, but CorelDRAW was the good one probably still at that point. Interesting in terms of vector graphics. Okay, and then there's one distinction here. I was hoping you could help demystify. So the spec was free at launch, but PDF did not become an open ISO spec until 2008. Yeah, so Adobe said, hey, anybody can use this. Okay. Like, if you want to build PDF into your applications, that's fine. Go for it. Uh, they The ISO process is a more, like, it's an industry agreed upon spec. And basically, Adobe said, hey, uh, you can you can have this as a as a international spec- specification at this point. Uh, and and handed it over at that at that point. And, so that, and that means they're giving up sole control of the design. Like the, then, other other actors are able to start expanding the specification. The, theoretically, yeah. Okay. I mean, you move at the pace of the ISO. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but, uh, but but no. Like, if you remember, in the old days, in order to make a PDF from something like Word, you had to you know the Acrobat would install a weird printer driver that basically absorbed the 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 print from word and would take whatever you printed and make make that into a pdf right so there was no export as pdf option in most apps at, at, in, until like mid 2000s probably around the time the iso iso thing happened right i dude i remember when save to pdf or print to pdf started becoming a thing it was like magic it was like manna yeah. from heaven like oh what do you mean i don't need a printer i can just make this a digital thing and hang on to it and not have a piece of paper well, and, and it's, um, it completely changed the way publishing worked. Yeah. Like, like, cause we went, so we shipped encapsulated postscript files to printers for a long time after I started at the magazine. Uh, and then when we switched to PDF, it, everything became much easier because we were able to actually proof on screen rather than proofing on paper, which was like, we, I mean, we still proofed on paper for final, 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 but we would look at the, at the prepress in PDF format. Um, which saved a ton of time. It was, it was really cause nice. I, I, Cause I assume, cause you, you knew that what you were sending to the printer was going to look the same for them that it did for you. 
So yeah, I mean, we still we still printed everything and sent the prints too, right? So like, um, that's always good to have a fallback. Well, you you sent the prints in case there was some sort of color repro issue or somebody somebody had jacked up some setting somewhere, right? So that then when they're printing the first pages off the press and they look at them, they have something to compare to that's going to be accurate, right? Um, so I guess there's still an analog check at the very very end, but uh, yeah, that so that that's uh that's it. That's the year I went to college. Yeah, uh, a lot of stuff. My, yeah, it was a weird, weird time. This mm-hmm. is the best of times. It was the first time I was on the internet. Um, sorry, we blew this out into two episodes. <laughs> but uh, also, you're welcome. Yeah. Wait, did we not? Oh, yeah, we talked about the Macintosh Color Classic. You didn't strike through that, but no. we talked about it last week for That's sure. My, my striking through was inconsistent. Um, uh, This is the part of the show where we thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, patrons. Uh, if you would like to find out how to support uh, Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod, which is, as always, a 100% listener-supported show, you can go to patreon.com slash techpod. And for two bucks a month, you can join the fabulous community on our Discord, uh, which uh, is like a constant source of joy to me, yeah, absolutely. I would say. Absolutely. How- we have we have a new channel. I made a new channel yesterday. You made it. Wait, this is the first new channel in a long time. We kind of slowed down when we got threads. Yes. At the uh, Yes, threads have, threads have helped to... Uh, silo off certain discussions but uh yes uh discord super user teddy is running a retro game of the month club Ooh, uh, which is he, he built a whole web tool and everything for people to vote on a you know big big mr community big emulation community on the server and so they are going to focus down on some specific classic retro games and play them and talk about them oh man that's really cool yeah it's a neat idea he, he put um, some work into it it's it's cool i uh yeah, I, I like that a lot. I I spent a lot of time in there talking in the video games channel talking about the Playdate case, mm-hmm. uh, or I guess in general actually, because it seemed like it kind of, or the Maker channel is where I put it, and people had really good ideas for helping me figure out how to do uh, everything except for the gluing the two flat sheets of of acrylic to each other. That's yeah. the that's the thing I need the next wave of help with, I guess. Yes. Yeah. There there are some very experienced makers on that server. Ed, Ed, my my hard drive, my rattling hard drives in the NAS problem. Ed suggested getting some neoprene, some very thin neoprene. That is a much better solution than the felt. Yes. Yeah. Much better. He said he said maybe don't put something in there that could degenerate into kind of particulates. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So good, um, good call. So anyway, uh it's patreon.com slash techbod. You <laughs> you can join the the group of supporters, including our executive producer tier patrons. The name thing is getting good now. Um, <laughs> including our, our executive tier patrons, who we like to thank every week, including Paddle Creek Games, makers of Fractured Veil, Andrew Slosky, Bunny Thorpe, parentheses, modem noises, crimes. <laughs> uh-huh. do, do I have to make the modem? Does it look like Bunny Thorpe? That's- <laughs> you know, I'll take it. Just Wedge, Jacob Chapel, Joel Krauska, The Sound of Twinkies, David Allen, and James Kamek. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate you. We do. And, and we appreciate everybody who supports the show. Uh, we will be back next week with another edition of the Tech Pod. Hey, uh, probably uh, listen to the Foss Pod when it lands this week. Yeah. Because it's going to be a banger. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I'll say. It, w- it will be of interest. Yeah, you'll like it. Yes, promise. Yes. Uh, Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Tech Pod. Mm